Welcome to episode 59 of Music Nerds Unite. This is Scott Floman again with my brother Keith Floman and our buddy Larry Waldman. In this episode, we're continuing our tournament to determine the best rock song of the 1980s. And we're doing the fourth and final bracket of round one. So we have four matchups on tap and we have some, uh, some curveballs we're going to throw today because we're going to have matchups within matchups and you'll see what I mean soon. So that intro song, which I picked, is Bastards of Young by The Replacements. So we mentioned them previously when talking about Husker Du, since both were legendary 80s alternative rock bands from the same Minneapolis scene and both helped pave the way for the alternative rock explosion of the 1990s. The Replacements, or the Mats as their fans affectionately call them, were a band of lovable drunks who happened to be fronted by one of rock's great songwriters and lyricists in Paul Westerberg, whose raspy voice wasn't pretty, but which had a rough-hewn charm. In particular, their trilogy of mid-80s albums, including Let It Be, Tim, which is probably my favorite, which is where Bastards of Young originated from, and Pleased to Meet Me is just a great run. Bastards of Young shows the guys at their most anthemic. The Mats were a legendary call band, but they should have been bigger. They were known to self-sabotage, and for whatever reason, they had to settle for being influential rather than being successful. Those intro riffs, that intro scream, the rousing chorus, lyrics like, it beats picking cotton and waiting to be forgotten. This is just a great song all around. Westerberg could tug at your heart with his everyman musings, but he could also make you laugh out loud. Just a phenomenal songwriter. We didn't get the mats into this tournament, but I'm hoping this intro tribute makes up for that at least a little bit. They're a tragic story in a, in, a, in a way, right? Because they deserve better and they, they, they aspired for more, even though they didn't do it in a commercial package. You know, they, they just were like, they just missed, you know, they missed something. It's like, it's like, a, almost, like a Nirvana that never happened. <laughs> I almost think they couldn't have done more than they were like not from an artistic standpoint at all i just think it's it's like scott was saying like they kind of got in their own way they were a little self-destructive oh, but I don't know if they necessarily even wanted that again there are bands that broke that were also self-destructive and got in their own way and yeah but but also i think again i did i think they did i think they aspired for more than they were right um and they just didn't get it while they were, you know, active and and, pro, and and putting out great records. And they became influential and, like you said, like more of a cult band. They're definitely a cult band. I mean, I feel like I feel like you know, people in the know or or people who are like music nerds, like we were back in the day, would say like, "Oh, the Mats are one of the best bands in America." And other people would be like, "What? Who?" They weren't commercial. They weren't played on the radio unless you listen to like an alt station like LIR or something. Like you just never heard of them, you know? But yet if you were if you listen to college radio or if you listen to people who knew music, they were huge. Yeah, then they're, they're legends and uh yeah. timing, I guess, what wasn't right also. You think of the success the Goo Goo dolls had, right? And they clearly a major influence uh from the replacements on their sound and and they took it to the bank and let's face it i mean pleased to meet me tried like there's definitely a polished you know a- aspect to pleased to meet me that was there but just again didn't get received the same way it would have if it was released at a different time by a different band 
Yeah, like anyway, can hardly there. wait, right? How can, how is can hardly wait not a huge? Yeah, I say right. right. Can hardly wait if Bruce Springsteen put it out in on board in the USA, it would have been <laughs> it would have taken its place. Okay, so brief trivia: the producer of Tim was one Tommy Erdelli. What is his other name? What what is he also known as? <laughs> Tommy Ramone. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. Well, I, I, yeah, okay. All right. Anyway, so we're going to hit the first matchup and really match ups because what we're going to do here is we have two Joy Division songs, right? So Love Will Tear Us Apart is going to go up against Atmosphere. And the winner of that matchup will be the number three seed. And that winner will go up against the number 35 seed, Lenny Kravitz, with Let Love Rule from 1989. First up, Love Will Tear Us Apart. Apart is going up against Atmosphere again, both by Joy Division. People like you find it easy, aching to see, walking on air, hunting by the river. Through the streets, every corner abandoned to settle, set down with due care. Don't walk away in silence. Don't walk away. talked on several occasions about our deep love for joy division 
whether in the original NIT with Matt, our original album tournament, or even when talking about other bands like Interpol. They were just an incredibly influential band, kind of like the way the Velvet Underground had influenced bands two decades prior. And like that band, despite their massive influence and innumerable copycats, nobody really sounds quite like them. Love Will Tear Us Apart was the band's only actual hit here in the U.S., though. Yeah. And, and I think you mentioned this, I think, when we were talking about Unknown Pleasures, that most of their biggest songs actually aren't on either of their two studio albums. But Love Will Tear Us Apart was just a single. It wasn't on. Well, these, both these songs. Both right? of these songs. Got to mention before that, like three yeah. of the yeah. well-known songs are not yeah. on either of yeah, them. Yeah, and the third one being Transmission, which Transmission. was a 70s song, so not eligible for this tournament, but perhaps will make an appearance once we hit the 70s. And the fourth one being Ceremony, which just moved into the next round. Yeah, right. Exactly. Sure, but there's, there's not an actual studio version of that song, I don't think. Oh, sure. No, no, no. There's a live version. With a live the, version, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I would say... If anyone is familiar, mildly familiar with Joy Division, they probably know Level Terrace Apart, right? Level Terrace Apart is probably their bigger, their more well-known song. It's it's literally etched in Ian Curtis's gravestone, right? And and famously is about his relationship with his his wife. Although it's also about lots of other things too. It's about his struggles with depression. It's about you know his struggles with epilepsy. There's, there's a lot going on in 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 this song. And uh, it's, to me, it's, it's just so incredibly powerful. Joy Division is one of the, I think, the only bands where no matter when a song by them comes on, no matter what, I will listen to it. Like, you know, you're not turning off any of these songs. You're not switching the channel, even if you're not in the mood. It just, they're all moods. They're all of their songs. Like, they, they just, at least, that's, that's how I think all three of us feel. But that's just how it is. You can't. Yeah, it's disrespectful to yeah. Ian to to turn it off. This one is atypical though, because it's a pop song, right? Even though it still has that ghostly haunting quality, it's more synthesizer based, right? It's got a catchy it's still the melody. Model, I mean, the delivery the is The delivery, not, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Which is, I think, part of the beauty of it too, is that you've got these two things juxtaposed against themselves, yeah. right? This poppy, like very much, you could, you could have seen this as a 1983 New Order song I was going to say that, yeah, points the way towards New Order in a way. It really does, yeah. You know, minus minus some of the the, the way the way that Ian's singing, but yeah, yeah. yeah. But you it definitely can't replicate definitely that. See where like, Joy Division is so interesting. One of the things that I think is so interesting about them is that you know, in lots of bands like this where somebody died untimely, you know, there's always like the what if. How would they have evolved? What would you have seen? What would they have done? And Joy Division, you actually do get to see potentially what they would have become because you have new order. Now, if Ian was alive, would that have been the path? Probably not the same, but yeah. you can see some of those influences and some of those elements. So it would have been even better. Yeah, I know. I know. I, know. Been. I mean, we, you talk about you, you can hear new order in level terrace apart, but in atmosphere, you can certainly hear the future as well. Yeah, integration, totally. right? Song ever been more aptly titled? I was, I, you, I swear, you just took the words right out of my mouth. I was going to say it is so well titled because that's exactly what it is. It's an atmospheric song, and which is something that we all gravitate towards, and we all we all listen. Like I even hear things like um, I hear like in a lot of 
death metal that I really like, especially in the last like 10, 15 years, I hear atmosphere too, right? And, and I hear it literally and figuratively, like they're atmospheric and that's even a genre of atmospheric death metal, but I hear it in atmosphere, so. And how great is the drum sound alone on this song, right? It's so big and powerful and, and you have those lush synth washes, those vocals are, you know, the doomy vocals of uh, just a guy staring into the abyss and, and the bass lines are great. And people like you find it easy, right? That's the line that, that really stands I, I out, had right? To include, I had to include that one. Right? And, and what's devastating is what's left unsaid, right? People like him don't find it easy. Right. That's the whole, that's the whole vibe, right? It's this, you know, sort of moody, gothic. I don't know. I just, I feel like... Keith has said this so many times, right? You, you just feel like you're hearing something that hasn't been, it hadn't been done yet. Like you're hearing the future. You're not hearing something that should have been done in 1980. That's just, that's the feeling I get. I also have to say, like, I know a lot of the songs from Joy Division are 79, 70, somewhere not to do, I think one or two of them are in 78, depending on like when they were, when they were written. We could put like seven different songs on here and just depending on the day or the time or the mood, I probably could have picked any of the seven and happily soon go all the way to, you know, final four. Yeah. I mean, Decades is one of my favorite songs of all time. This this is a tough call. Level Terrace Apart is is their most famous song there. By far, right? Like like there's no comparison in terms, like there's literally no comparison. Yeah, like like I think um, NME rated as the greatest song of all time and and for those who don't know any of these new musical express it's it's a a british and now i think it's like an everything but it used to be a music and it's been around for like 70 years like they were one of the first magazines to ever have charts and they named it the best song of all time so i i think i think acclaimed music which is another like aggregation site has it as like the 14th best song of all time and like the best song of the 80s so i mean it, it clearly has significant critical and cultural claim yeah but we are the we are influencers ourselves we are that's right for our future loyal listeners and and our future future is yet to be written about the place in history Mm -hmm. joy division's best 80s songs exactly and uh honestly i nominated atmosphere and i'm sticking with my pick i just find it to be the, the more devastating song the the more memorable song with those drum beats and the lyrics and the synth washes and and how it paved the way to later great work like disintegration. Well, I think he's trying to be more devastating in fairness. <laughs> I think so too. He definitely succeeded. As great as Level Terrace Apart is, it's it's more atypical to me. It's it's not quite as devastatingly powerful, but it is a freaking brilliant song in its own right. And I'm gonna let you guys decide. I, I'm casting my vote for atmosphere. So I'm gonna I'm gonna keep it interesting. I'm going to cast my vote for Level Terrace Apart, not because I enjoy putting Keith in the place of making a decision, because but sometimes you kind of do. do. You kind of, I kind of do. I do kind of like that. No, honestly, I, I'm going to do. <laughs> and he prefers he prefers not to validate Scott's. Vote. Yeah, that's there is a little there, bit. There's a little of that too. Yeah. A, definitely some of that too. Um, but also just because, again, I I think it's place in in history. I, I I'm just putting it just puts it slightly over the top. But like I said before, you'd asked me an hour ago or three hours ago, it probably would have been atmosphere. Just, uh, you know, as I started doing a little bit more thinking and reading, I kind of switched. But when I was driving home earlier and was listening to atmosphere, I'm like, 
also made a book for us. But that's how close it is. Yeah, that's how. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. All right, Flowman. Oh man, this is a brain fuck for me. In one sense, I'm voting for Joy Division, but in another sense, I'm voting against them. So, like, <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a great that's a great way to put it. I love it. That makes it that makes the existential debate even better. <laughs> exactly. You know, I have to. One of them's got to lose. Um, like Mr. T said, prediction. Pain. <laughs> um, it, it, in a way, like for, for me personally, this in either way I go, right? It represents um, sort of to, to me the '80s went in two directions, right? There's where Maiden takes it in the metal realm, and there's right, and there's where Joy Division sort of takes it. Uh, you know, in that other realm that, you know, is so, like both of them are so like they're half of my <laughs> of my musical, you know, journey in, in the 80s um, and beyond and, and beyond. Right? Like they they're a launching point. Um, I just got to I just got to point out that, as you said, where Maiden takes you, I saw a lightning bolt in the window in your of your house like i could see it in the background <laughs> like that that was pretty cinematic that was fucking awesome <laughs> uh, yeah i could have said metallic like ride the lightning yeah um but made it did come first and and honestly the the i think the song that represents that sort of path more is atmosphere uh, and maybe it's it's the cure lover. It's the cure lover in me that <laughs> that know that knows that Robert Smith listened to that like to that song and said, "I'm going to this is going to inspire me to um, to do things that I wouldn't have otherwise been inspired to do." Um, well, Ian must be smiling down upon you because as you said, atmosphere, another lightning bolt. Yeah, yeah. I think I, I think I pushed to get atmosphere into this. You did. Um, playoff. You know, into this playoff. So, the more you were talking, the more I saw you veering away from level terrace apart onto atmosphere. So, yeah. Well, you get no, you get no, uh, no lamenting for me, no gnashing of teeth for me. That was right because in, in the end, who wins? Joy Division. Exactly. But Joy Division stoles up against Lenny. Yep, so let's play Let Love Rule. Oh, there's another. Well, okay, we'll play it. Poor Lenny. Words that were never said. No, way. no, usually, usually <laughs> not words associated with Lenny Crack. <laughs>
gotta admit that's a damn good tune. That's a fucking great song. It's it's just, I mean, that clip is, I mean, it's hard to beat. It is. It's hard to. It's like, got it's it all, hard man. not to be like completely engulfed by that clip. It's got the sax solo, the, the keyboard, the scat singing, the scream, even the drumming the message, is great. The and message, that's landing the on message, drums. Like it's to complete. Like it, it is literally. The complete antithesis of joy. Right? Yeah. It's, it's a good. great matchup in that respect, and that you really get two totally different ends of the spectrum. It's the beauty of music, right? There's moods for that love rule just is just uplifting. <laughs> uh, you know, jam that is sending a message of love and hope. And, right? Like it could be a Bob Molly song in that respect, right? It's got that theme or those universal sentiments of basically a spiritual salvation and togetherness through love that you hear in so many Bob Marley songs. But in a kick ass, in a way that kicks in a ass. Kick ass rock song. Oh, yeah. Right. yeah. I, I mean, I, I remember the first time I ever heard this. One of my friends who I sh I've shouted out before, I'll shout him out again. One of my friends, JB, had a uh, radio, we had a college radio station, he had a show and he played this. And I'm like, I've never heard anything like this before. It combines so many different things that I love, right? It's got horns, it's got little jazz, a little scat, a little funk. Like it's it's got everything. It's a great song. It's just up against a bad matchup, you know? I, I think in terms of credibility, if we pick Lenny Kravitz over Joy Division, we just have to turn in our credit cards and never speak of music again. Yeah, and I'm not willing to do that. So and and yeah, but that, that, come on, that's bullshit. Um, we ain't <laughs> we're not critics, we're not about critic cred. We're picking the better song here. And fair enough, fair enough. Anybody could have lightning in a bottle. And, and again, this is early in Lenny's career. Like this is this was before Kravitz was this is his first single, I believe. Yeah. So right. it's not like you know, sometimes it happens where the artist they become is different than the artist they start out as. We all agree Lenny peaked, right? This is when he peaked, obviously commercially. He went on to much bigger and, and better things, but you know this is uh, this is a high point. With with Joy Division, it, it, it's inescapable the backstory, also, right? Something about Ian, his story, what happened. It, it's like with I don't know with Cobain or or Lennon, it just it hits you even that much harder when when guys like that move on prematurely, and then and certainly in certain cases where you see the signs of of what was happening to him like if you it certainly was real certainly was real as donnie ron would say he means it man and they just had such a singular sound also it paved the way to so much that followed but they, they still to me have just a very unique and singular sound that that only comes from joy division and not even new order but joy division all right all right lenny we hardly knew you but you lenny did we vote did we do we need to do this to Lenny? Let's not do it to him. We'll just yeah, it. yeah. We got to sleep here. Let's but, keep uh, that love rule is an all-time great song, and uh, it's rarely considered as such. So uh, I'm glad that at least we we got to shine a brief light on that. Yep. Right. And you do have to let love rule. Absolutely. All right. So this is another one here. We got uh, in this matchup. We're going to first debate three REM songs since we all nominated different songs. And then the winner, which will be the 19th seed, is going to go up against the number 14 seed, Iron Maiden, 
with Hallowed Be Thy Name from 1982. So regarding R.E.M., I nominated South Central Rain with its memorable I'm Sorry Chorus from 1984. Larry nominated Radio Free Europe, the lead-off track from their classic Murmur album, which is basically ground zero for college rock and very influential as such. And Keith nominated It's the End of the World as We Know It, which is forever a karaoke favorite due to its breathless rush of words, and which, along with the one I love, saw them making major inroads into having mainstream success. We're going to play a clip from each song now, starting with uh, South Central Rain. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, too. Just before we start, do we have a contingency plan, Scott? Sorry. Uh, in case there's not a winner. Uh, there'll be a winner. We'll figure it out. <laughs> All right. <laughs> is Radio Free Europe. we know it and I feel fine. Birthday party, cheesecake, jelly beef, food, symbiotic, patriotic, slam, blood, death. 
Shout out to Mike Mills on backing vocals. How great is he on those on those harmonies? It's great, it's great. Mike, Mike Mills is he has great backing vocals. Yeah, among the best. He's yeah. even sang lead on some songs and did yeah. a great job on those. Also, Superman, Heaven, Texarkana. Yeah, and I know it's not a, a critical fave, but Shiny Happy People's backing vocals on there are fucking awesome. I fucking love Shiny Happy People. Screw that, man. All right, good. All right. All right, guys. Why did you pick these songs? I picked Radio for Europe because it's like, to me, it was like the start, right? It was the, it was the start of REM. It was the start of like the whole college indie rock scene. It was the start of REM, like unbelievable uh, musicianship, unbelievable melodies, unbelievable tunes, completely unintelligible lyrics, you know, and, unless you really, really tried hard. And then even then, you know, very much subject to interpretation, which is kind of funny as to why End of the World became so popular because that actually, those lyrics are pretty, you know, straightforward. Like, you know, they're very fast, at, but they're not- Mumbled vocals are part of the appeal, right? It added no, a, so another me, layer of mystery. Tell me, what, tell me what it's about, Larry. Like, Pitch me why I actually care about the, the lyrics. The, it's the That's end of the world as we know it. Radio free. <laughs> for, oh, for radio uh, free? Radio free. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I can't. That's <laughs> not the point. That's, a, that's not the point. The that's point is how it sounds. Yeah. Um, although radio free also, it, it's interesting. I, I went back and forth as to which version I should play. What, what do you, which one, do you think I landed on the right one, Scott? What do you think? You played the album version? I played the Murmur version, not the eponymous Yeah, one, yeah, that's like, the one I'm much more familiar with. I haven't heard the single in a while, but I recall liking the album version, Don. Yeah, you know, I, I've gone back and forth. I remember when I think I might have gotten eponymous before I got Murmur. Yeah, so that was their first greatest hits album. Yeah, and I think I had gotten like, I, I don't, I, for whatever reason, I, I got Murmur like as like my fourth REM album or my fifth. And I remember liking the eponymous version first better, thinking, ah, this isn't good. But then when you listen to Murmur as a whole, obviously it's. it's yeah. So bad. that was a single that was recorded before the version on Murmur. Exactly. But I think you picked the right one. I think this, I just think that this, to me, this encapsulates what REM was for its first like three to four albums before they started getting a little bit more mainstream, a little bit more poppy. Um, and I, just to me, that this, this encapsulates like so much of the eighties for me, just like Keith was talking about joy division and maiden and, you know, two different poles of where music was going indie rock and, and the beginning of alt rock. Like this to me is, this is where it started from, at least for me, like this is one of the bands that started my, my journey into this type of music, you know, in like the mid to early eighties when I was starting to veer off of, pop really and this is it this is one of the bands that brought me there so i i, I got to pay tribute to what got me there and this this to me is the one that really uh amplifies that is it my turn to pitch end of the world yeah it's your turn to me it is the rem song because it is sort of early rem 
but it's still sort of, you know, anthemic in, in a way. Um, it's, it's different. There's no other song really like it. It's poppy, but it's clearly alternative. Um, it's like Scott said, it's, you know, it's a sing-along that nobody can possibly sing along to. Um, and you need two singers for the backing vocals. It's, you know, and right, it's got, you can interpret it in your own, in your own way, right? It's the end of the world. I feel fine but I still need time alone. <laughs> um, I don't know. There's a depth to it beyond sort of the, you know, the, the on, onslaught of, of lyrics. And it's the most unique singular piece that, that they've made by far. And it's a driving song. And one thing that I like about it is, is it exemplifies that no matter how commercial the band would get, they'd always be just a little bit strange, right? That is, yeah. it's very commercial, but it's also a weird freaking song. And it is a great tune. Both of them are great tunes. And and South Central Rain is is an early favorite of mine too. It's, it's just dramatic and moody and you have that great I'm Sorry chorus. And just an FYI, they were all similarly rated on, on best ever albums. They were all like 88, 89. In, in which, one came, which one was the highest rated? I believe South Central Rain was the lowest. They, it was like 88 and the other two were like 89 from what I recall. So they were in the same ballpark. For clarification, End of the World ranked the, the highest. Rated. It is ranked highest. Uh, yeah, okay. I believe you. <laughs> Just throw it out there. It's it's so funny because I I, I I thought you were asking that question because you were genuinely curious. No, no, he was trying to stop me. <laughs> no, I didn't I didn't ask which was the highest rating. <laughs> or you just wanted to clarify which was the highest rating. I'm you're clarifying that. Right? You're clarifying. All right. Got it. Brought it up. I just made sure that was right. You just I was just it. trying to point out that there's not much separating these three songs, regardless of high or low or whatever, they're all in the same ballpark. South Central Rain may be my favorite. In, in thinking about it a bit further, the, the other two are a bit more important and influential overall. So I, I'm going to abstain from my pick. And uh, I already talked about Keith's song, and, and, and it is a great song. So I'm going to talk about Radio Free Europe. When I think about the, the 80s and R.E.M.'s influence and importance, it, to me, it rests more in the, in the alternative realm than the mainstream in the 80s we're talking about because they didn't become true megastars until the early 90s. And though they had the Chronic Town EP before it, for many people, the whole college rock movement, the indie rock movement was essentially launched by Murmur and its lead off track Radio Free Europe. It's got everything that's great about early REM. It's bouncy and catchy, yet it's also singular and mysterious. You have Michael Stipe's famously mumbled vocals, as Larry mentioned. And, and there's also Peter Buck's Jangly Bird's influenced Rickenbacker guitar, another signature sound of that era and, and that type of music. So these are three great songs, but Radio Free Europe is my pick here ever so slightly. So that's the majority, and, and that's what's going to move on here. You guys have any Larry, Larry Tabs and voted yet? I believe he did, Rocky but. Radio Free Europe. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was understood, but all right. You're sticking with it, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I do love. I and and I had suggested that we stack rank them, but if I was to vote, I would have picked South Central a second. So, sorry, Keith. What well, your second pick, Keith? Just curious. Yeah, I, I, I know. I see that. Not that it matters. 
um, radio. radio. Yeah. All, right. All right, so Radio Free Europe will be the number 19 seed, and now it's going to go up against the number 14 seed, Iron Maiden, with How Be Thy Name from 1982. Here's a clip from that song. <laughs> Hallowed Be Thy Name. To me, this song is on the short list of the greatest heavy metal songs ever. It's epic at over seven minutes long. It has great and highly religious lyrics about a prisoner headed for his execution. And musically, it has many fantastic buildups and excellent extended instrumental passages. With Steve Harris's blazing bass, traded off dual guitars and souls, and a first-rate drumming by Clive Burns' last album with the band. Of course, singer Bruce Dickinson on his first album with the band is excellent as well. I know Keith loves the Paul Diano era, and so do I. But Bruce did take them to the next level. And this was his first album with the band, and it's just freaking phenomenal. So we have uh, a supremely dramatic, incredibly exciting, and powerful song. To me, it's my favorite Iron Maiden song, and probably their consensus best song to most people. All three REM songs are great, but to me, none of them are, are anywhere near the level of How Be Thy Name. I, I do love this song, and I, I think that Bruce Dickinson is one of the best rock singers of all time, it's, it's at least in terms of range. It's just that when I think about the 80s, I came to Maiden later than I came to R.E.M. So R.E.M. is more formative for me for the 80s and R.E.M. captures the 80s that like my musical 80s more than Maiden does, even though subsequently I probably put them about the same because like I said, I just came to them later. So I'm going to go with Radio for Europe and, and R.E.M., but I'm pretty sure I'm going to go down in flames in this one and I'll be thy name is going to be moving on to round two. Yeah, for me, I, I didn't hear R.E.M. until Fall On Me, right? So that was probably around 85, and then It's the End of the World, and The One I Love. But I, 
I don't think I listened to an actual REM album until years later. So I didn't come to Murmur probably until maybe early 90s. Yes, for me it, was, totally for me it was the opposite. Like I would hear Maiden songs and like them, but I don't think I, ha- I don't even know if I had an album. Whereas I had like, I think I had every, by the time, by like 19, like 89, I probably had every REM album. Because again, you know, I've said this many times, like, it's not like now where you can just listen to whatever you want. Like you had to, be, you had to decide, like, am I going to get Reckoning or am I going to get Fables? Like, you yeah, know, you have to call, yeah. right? And then you don't get another one for like two or three months. So it took me a while to be able to build that up. But I, and I used to listen to REM CDs all the time. So yeah, for me, for me, it's REM, but I'm, I'm fairly certain he's going hollow. Which REM song was going through. You're like, yeah, yeah, yeah that's why I think, yeah, in the back of my head, I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, Scott and I, we saw Maiden in, in January of 1985 when we were 15. And it was like the greatest thing of all time. <laughs> like, and that's a legendary thing. tour and concert. Uh, live, live After Death album, after the World Slavery tour. tour. Yeah. Queensryche was the opener at that point for us. I I agree. I don't think you know REM wasn't on the radar the same way. And again, I get that they were parallel, right, in terms of how they were building. Um, I mean, and, and REM obviously took it way beyond where Maiden was, right? Like you almost, you know, they they stepped on Maiden around '85 in terms of where they went from there, right? Um, but for, you know, for me, you know, Maiden was, you know, they were, they were gods of that era. Um, and they, in a, in a way, they were, they were like the early 80s were metal and there was, you know, Maiden begot Metallica, but that was sort of, you know, the, they were the, they were the pinnacle of, of, um, of metal and, how would be that aim is sort of like the the most representative of, of maiden of that you know the dickinson era so yeah this was this was a relatively easy matchup for me but again it's sort of my own leaning in terms of you know bias of that of that time period and like where i was it's a function of you know the emotion of that you know of where you were at that time that's all, all it is it's also a much longer song, therefore it's better. Yeah, it's, it's better. Well, yeah, like he said, Maiden was the pinnacle of metal at that time, and Hallow Be Thy Name was the pinnacle of Maiden. So, yeah, for us, uh, it's a no-brainer, no disrespect to R.E.M., one of my all-time favorite bands, as, as is Maiden. But, unless, uh, you picked a, unless you picked a Trooper. The Trooper's awesome, too, yeah. That's or my good. personal favorite, The Prowler. Uh, yeah, that's we're going back to Deanna. That's more of a uh, personal cult favorite. Cult favorite. Largely unknown to the NASA's at large. Anyway, Maiden moves on, and we're going to hit the next matchup. We have the number six seed Sonic Youth with Teenage Riot from 1988 versus the number 27 seed The Waterboys with Fisherman's Blues, also from 1988. So we have the Battle of 
against Fisherman's Blues. alternative rock bands ever. In fact, Nirvana signed to the Geffen record label largely because that was Sonic Youth's record label. That's the kind of respect the band garnered. The band had a long run of mostly really good albums before Thurston Moore and Kim Gordon, who were a couple, broke up their marriage in the band. I would say their music was occasionally bogged down by over-experimentation and like pavement, they exuded a certain cooler than thou hipness, which could be <laughs> annoying, right? But the bottom line is the few bands have ever had a cooler sound than Sonic Youth, whose music could be both incredibly abrasive and shockingly beautiful. The band's artistic peak was the 1988 double album Daydream Nation, which was in our original album tournament. And the album and probably the band's signature song is its lead-off track, Teenage Riot. It starts all slow and dreamy, which, which we didn't showcase. Uh, you have Kim talking, but then it takes off with some great riffs. And drummer Steve Shelley, who's always the band's secret weapon, really propels the song along. Teenage Riot provides a great example of the band's stellar groove-based attributes. And though it's seven minutes long, it doesn't ever seem overlong or indulgent. It's just a great tune all around. I, I, I do agree with you that Teenage Riot is um, more influential. It's probably the bigger song for the 80s and and it's it is almost like two songs like you described it really well like there's it starts off with you know sort of like talk almost like not rap but sort of like talk like and then 80 seconds or like 90 seconds in it sort of like stops it's quiet and then all of a sudden turns into a completely different song i always felt like teenage riot is kind of an anomaly if you started out because it's the lead track i don't think you you wouldn't expect the rest of Daydream Nation to follow it necessarily. It feels like it's a different, it's a little bit of a different type of vibe for them. I do agree. I think that in general, I think that Sonic Youth could get a little too 
experimental and and it, it definitely takes a little it's not like abrasive like joanna newsom abrasive but which is now my new that is now my new standard for abrasiveness <laughs> it's now replaced it's it's definitely replaced <laughs> um trap mask always the gold standard yeah. yeah for sure um after our, our last debate but um but it's not that bad but it does it it's just it's different and it takes a while i think to sort of appreciate it like i definitely when I, the first time i heard all data nation i was not i don't want to say i wasn't a fan but i didn't love it i didn't think it was great i was like okay that's kind of different it's weird but the more you listen to it the more i think you appreciate what they're trying to do teenage riot is immediate though it's more immediate like yeah that's a thing. yeah that's what's totally different i think from the rest there's of the a time. hook to yeah right it, it hooks you getting chords and yeah if you listen to teenage Ryan, you would not you would expect a different album than you get when you listen to the rest of it and then right, teenage Ryan, it's like yola tango right it's like a yola tango vibe in and probably I'm sure it inf- I'm sure it influenced them. I would imagine uh, so. I, I'm sure they influenced lots and lots of bands. Yeah, right. Judging by the way we're all vibing out to uh, Fisherman's Blues, though, I, I, this is gonna uh, a clo- this is a lot closer matchup than I thought it might be. Um, I mean, I don't well, think like, it's a close like matchup said, at all. Well, really? And, and, and in a sense, right? Um, but maybe not in the way you're thinking. Like well, Scott clearly started, not. Scott started with the replacements and. In, in a sense, like the Water Boys have a little bit of that vibe, right? Where they're they just missed the mark, you know. Where they, and they missed the mark even more so, right? Where they're less in, like they're less revered as um, you know this underground band, but still. Well, you know, I also think, I think that they, they, I, like I've said this. I said this about the Cult. And I think Scott disagreed with me, really, because he you know he he was saying, well, they're bigger than you thought. But that's not what I was trying to get at. I was like, they they missed their their mark in that they just weren't right for the era. They would have been bigger in a different era. Like the Waterboys would have been much different or bigger in the two thousands because that kind of music, yeah, yeah. right? Okay, fine. Picture right, them like with the Decemberists, yeah, exactly with the Decemberists or with like um, Iron and Wine, like or or Fleet Foxes. Like they they have like this indie folk indie new folk vibe. They would have been much bigger in the two thousands early 2000s to like 2015 or so when that was a really bigger genre i think you know yeah so so scott this is definitely not the way i thought it was going right look at the seedings right you have six versus 27 so so some would think that the water boys are a big underdog here but for me sonic you've never had a chance here i mean teenage <laughs> riot is a classic song Though the truth be told, I actually nominated Schizophrenia, which is my favorite Sonic Youth song. Teenage Riot is the best song on their best album. It's catchy and epic, and it grooves along like nobody's business. It is a great song, but it's not passionate like the Waterboys are, especially with the vocals. As there are some more vocals are, are kind of deadpan. As again, Sonic Youth could be a <clears throat> bit too cool for school. Teenage Riot doesn't make me feel like Fisherman's Blues does. It doesn't affect me emotionally to nearly the same extent. So I have the Water Boys moving on here, and I'm hoping to get backed up by at least one of you two guys. Woo! And it's also got some of the best woos and some great fiddle playing. You know, I mean, how do, how do you go against how do you go against classic woos, right? I'm with you. <laughs> Water Boys, I like Teenage Riot. I think it's a great song. I I, I think. 
Daydream Nation has definitely grown on me over the years. I do think it's a great work of art, but I, I agree. I don't get the same feeling. Like you said, I, I could have told you how this was going as soon as as soon as we started playing it and watching all three of us. Yeah, like I knew beforehand, but after listening to those clips, there was absolutely no doubt. Yeah, but but I did. I honestly did think it was going to be more. I thought there would be more debate. I I did kind of think that Water Boys is going to win because I know we all love it. But I, I look. I mean, Teenage Riot's here for a reason, right? Like it it does and a very high seed as well. Yeah, exactly. It's it's a it is a influential high point of you know in the rock in the 80s like in way more so than the water boys um in terms of you know where it sits in the pantheon of of music from that era but and i love and i do love like again teenage riot was what like i'm like i'm not sure i'm i'm gonna be into you know this band and then right I, I, like immediately you're like all right i guess i well you hear how abrasive they are you know that's their reputation and then you hear this song and it's it's it goes down a lot easier than you'd expect right exactly. more straightforward than you'd expect but i i yeah i agree like there's a there's just an emotion to what the water what fisherman blues brings to the table that um, is what music is all about, right? Like it's finding that these these gems. That's what this is. That's emotion, is. yeah. That's that's the emotional pull of the songs. There's there's no comparison, in my opinion. Woo! We're moving on. Except I do have a couple trivia questions. One trivia question. Oh, uh, so so. Like, why don't you just say I have a couple? I have a couple of shaming. I have a couple of shaming things. All right, I'll, I'll give you track the of how many we actually get because it's not. No, it's, it's, yeah, let's, I let's, mean, it's like the most. <laughs> what alternative? What other alternative what, rock what legend is this? obscure. It's like, not even that obscure, though. Well, oh, maybe it is. All right, so what it's other alternative? But it's, it's only not obscure to you. Yeah. <laughs> and and this person will be appearing later. So what other who is the musical editor? Yeah, <laughs> musical editor, yeah. Who who did the splice from two twenty to two two exactly. yeah. <laughs> So regarding uh teenage uh, riot, what other alternative rock legend is this song allegedly about? Another obviously alternative. 80s icon also on SST records although this record was not on SST records the previous two were for Sonic Youth not even a hazard guess Jay Maskus Dinosaur Jr. all right so foreshadowing there keep that in your back pocket so I was going to ask you another question but let's just move on let's just move on <laughs> if, if you ask another question my answer is going to be Jay Maskus there you go all right so we have again we've talked repeatedly about alternative rock and hard rock being the key movements in the 80s and so here we go the next matchup is the number 11 seed pixies not the pixies pixies with the pacer from 1989 versus the 22 seed guns and roses with sweet child of mine from 1980 this is not this is not a fair first round matchup just, well, look at that scene. Uh, 22? Are you kidding me? That's like, <laughs> it's just not. I know. 
this is where where this is bullshit. This is where we should have we should have receded. Like, yeah, if we were smart, we should have receded. Them's the breaks, man. Hey, it makes the first round more interesting. Yeah, I guess it, it makes us more ethical. We're we're true to you know the methods that we pick, but it's bullshit. So, right again, this could be a later round matchup, and, and and a a true contender will be sent packing when this is all said and done. Get the last guitar bit in there for Scott. Yeah, good stuff. The baser is going up against Sweet Child God of Mine. That's fucking good shit. And the fact that <laughs> the clip I'm playing shows that I know the baser is legit threat. Oh, totally. Because I know I I knew exactly what clip you were gonna play before you even gave me the number. So <laughs> I nominated Where Is My Mind, which is their most famous song in large part. But you know, movie. you know you were wrong. Yeah, you know that's a base. Well, Fight Club, there's commercials. And actually, my favorite Pixie song is probably Monkey Gone to Heaven, which has, I think, their greatest single moment, right? The one section, right? You know the one. 
So, but you guys nominate the baser. So, why don't you guys, uh, one of you guys, tell us why? I I think I talked about this a little bit when we had Doolittle in the album tournament. And that Doolittle, I have this like sort of weird relationship with Doolittle. I bought it because of Monkey Gone to Heaven. Like, I heard that song and I'm like, this is great. And I, I think I might have heard Here Comes Your Man also, but I bought it, I'm pretty sure, based on Monkey Gone to Heaven. And then I listen to it, and Debaser's the first song that comes on, and it you your Black Francis like screaming, and you're like, what, what did I just do? Like, what what is this? And then you you listen, and it, I almost feel like if you took the way he sings that, because he's he deliberately sings like that. He's not a terrible singer. It's not like that he sings like that because he he sings like that because he wants to, right? It's a great pop song. Like it's a really good pop song that also punches you in the face and kicks ass. Whenever I listen to Pixies and listen to Doolittle in particular, I always feel like there's somehow all of the, the parts are somewhat like greater than the album and not, and the album isn't quite as good as some of its best songs. I don't know if that makes any sense. But I agree with you that the highlights are what make Doolittle a great album rather yeah. than the cohesiveness and the wholeness of it. And there are many, there are lots of, there are there are lots highlights. of highlights. Yeah. yeah, there's so many great songs on it, but yet somehow, I don't know, it just doesn't always work for me in the same way. Like I almost feel like it's just a better album to listen to, just pick up a bunch, you know, songs as opposed to that. But having said that, on this album, especially I think because it's the opener, to me, it just it sets the tone. It's just a it's just a kick ass, great, great. Song like like after we were play, after we played it, Keith's just like that's so fucking good, right? The baser is fucking fun. It's just a great song. Like it kicks your ass, and you're you're with it, and there's just nothing not to like about it, right? I mean, and it's about a and it's about a Salvador Dali movie from like 1920. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's slicing up eyeballs. Yeah, it's it's totally it's a totally bizarre song. <laughs> exactly right. He, he even made some of the stuff up, like like because I think at one point I read something like he he was interviewed and he was like, well, you know, that was sort of in my like neo like pretentious, you know, I'm a critic, and I, he was trying to make something that was gr- like a great work of art, and then he realized he didn't really know what he was doing, and so he you know just sort of made shit up, and it works. And the rest of the band like didn't even ask him like what's the, like I'm not even gonna go there like let him right. sing whatever the fuck he wants to sing about I'm just gonna lay down. <laughs> well, you're but you're right. The delivery is like he's an insane singer, right? And then Kim Deal has his girlish backing vocals, which is what makes it a pop song, the perfect counterpoint, right? Right, right. That and that's what I'm saying. Like if you took out his like like absurdly angry like like screaming. It would, be great, it would be a great pop song, and but the, the, even though with Black Francis is like yelling, it's still yeah. a great song. It's it makes it even better. Yeah, it makes it's, it more distinctive for sure. Yeah. Again, it's it's one of the great it's one of the great songs of the eighties. I mean, yeah, and it is going up against a great song of the eighties, and like and it's another one of the great songs. Of yeah, the 80s. it is one of the iconic songs of the eighties. Like, I mean, this. As much as I love DeBaser, when I think of 80s music and I think of 80s like anthems, it's probably not the first one that comes to mind. 
you think of Appetite as the as one of the definitive albums, and this yeah. is the song from that album. Although there were other contenders, this one was the biggest one. It was it's the one yeah. you think of, absolutely. Sweet, and, Sweet Child is ubiquitous. Like the '80s don't exist without Sweet Child. My life is yeah, like yeah. the baser. And again, like we weren't in like in deep in the indie scene in the '80s as teenagers, right? No. Um, Guns N' Roses became, you know, much, and Appetite ultimately became a much more mainstream, you know, album than than Doolittle and the Pixies. Well, let's talk about the song itself, right? You had those great intro riffs, right, with Slash just the, around. the opening, right? The immediacy of Sweet Child is like, and it's a great love song, right? It's not really a power ballad; it's a little too fast for it, but it's definitely yeah, a love I song. Would... I never, I mean, I never really thought about it as a power ballad, but no, it's, it's a love song though, and, and it does yeah. have actually poetic, nice lyrics and great delivery in that high pitched, distinctive voice. And and you look at any greatest guitar solos of all time list, anyone that that's worth anything, and Sweet Child of Mine is on that list, and oh, probably yeah. pretty damn high. And, and the the part that you picked, I it's when I was listening to it today, like putting the the playlist together and stuff, it kind of struck me. It's almost like two solos, right? There's like a part yeah, A yeah, and a part yeah. B to the solo, you know? Yeah. And then you have that slam bang finale that, after the solo, which is yeah. great also. There's multiple sections. Each of them are great and distinctive in their own way. So just a phenomenal song. And we've talked before how GNR soundtracked our college years and and just was an important band to us. And as a result, they just mean more to me than the Pixies do. And Sweet Child of Mine means more to me than the baser. Maybe it's been a bit overplayed over the years, but honestly, I, I still never tire of hearing it. It's, it's just a fantastic song. It's also a, a favorite song of our dad, uh, Mr. Michael Floman. So shout out to Mr. Floman. He, uh, he loves this song. And uh, I have Sweet Child of Mine moving on. Uh, I have a feeling this one is going to come down to Keith. First of all, I do want to give a shout out to senior flowman who has phenomenal musical taste at least from what i've heard no yeah. he does he, he turned us on to all the good stuff man he really he really does know his stuff and have good taste yeah, yeah. um no scott i'm not i'm i'm not as much as i love the baser and and even though i nominated it it's like i said it doesn't when i think of the 80s and when i think of anthems of the 80s i i think of sweet child i don't think of the baser I might think the baser might be a better song, but for an 80s tournament, I think Sweet Child is the right pick. I don't know if that's logical or not, but that's how I'm going. So it's I mean it's logical, but it's it, but I don't I don't accept it as an as a Keith is correct. a pick your favorite song kind of guy, which we saw with Yeah, the exactly. Universe. Like I like this is not where we're here to influence the future people. We're not here to, to con confirm what's already conf been exactly. I still think that, like for me, thinking through the '80s, Sweet Child has more impact. It's not like you like the baser much more, right? It's close, and so the tiebreaker is the the impact. Exactly, exactly. It's not okay. like I like it much more. It's 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 that when I think about the impact and when I think about what it meant on my like my '80s. Yeah. Sweet Child has more impact. Yeah. When you're when it's that close, you gotta pick you gotta find something to pick, you know? Yeah. And and in a sense, right, like the baser almost gets 
picked up by what happened afterwards. And Sweet Child gets pulled down by what happened afterwards, right? Where just, the influences of both were were large, but but you know, I I think one was better than the other in terms of you know what what came afterwards because Sweet Child and Guns N' Roses led to they were yeah. looking backwards. The Pixies were looking forwards, really. Yeah, not the right. Exactly. Um, now I would. I'll, I'll tell you, like in my again, my own, my own brilliant foresight was. Oh, I can't wait to hear this. The first time, so it's like I won't take full credit because Amy Fetterman, the the sister of one of our best friends growing up. The guy who turned us on to metal, we call them heavy metal Fetterman. Heavy metal Fetterman sister, heavy metal Amy had this album. He was also into heavy metal? So she was a couple years younger than us. And John had this album back in early 87. Before before this album broke, I heard Sweet Child of Mine because they had the album and I'm like, that's awesome. Before I ever heard it anywhere else, I heard it on vinyl at the Fetterman's house. And I'm like, this is great. And soon enough after that, it became, you know, the song of, you know, the um, the metal scene of, 80, of 87. Ubiquitous on MTV as Ubiquitous. well. Ubiquitous. Uh, many, I had many good, Good memories of being at Spit, rocking out to uh, on the dance floor to Sweet Child of Mine. Um, so Spit was a metal club in Long Island back in the day. I heard about <laughs> Spit this weekend. Someone even someone even said, "Did you ever go to Spit?" I'm like, "Dude, I grew up in Massachusetts. Of course, I didn't go to Spit." <laughs> you missed out. I know I missed, missed out. out. <laughs> uh, so this one's going to go unanimous to Sweet Child, but. Again, it's all about the matchups, and the baser would go far. I can, uh, it would go far in a different ma- in a different bracket. All right, fair enough. All right, all right. So we're going to recap this round: the, the fourth bracket in round one, the final bracket in round one. We had the number three seed Droid Division with Atmosphere, which beat its own Level Terrace apart and then beat the number 35 seed, Lenny Kravitz, with Let Love Rule. But remember, so, Joy Division still wins. Even when Joy Division loses, they still win. But a very good showing by Lenny overall. Good showing by Lenny, yeah. Yep. And then we had the number 14 seed, Iron Maiden, with How'd Be Thy Name, beat the number 19 seed, R.E.M., with Radio Free Europe, which had beaten South Central Rain, and it's the end of the world as we know it to get to the matchup with Maiden. Then we had the number 27 seed, the Waterboys, with Fisherman's Blues, beat the number six seed, Sonic Youth, with Teenage Riot in a major upset seed-wise, but not really if you know our taste. Then we had the number, then we had the number 22 seed, Guns N' Roses, with Sweet Child of Mine, beat the number 11 seed, Pixies, with The Baser. We'll be back again soon, where we'll start round two of this tournament, where we're trying to determine the greatest rock song of the 1980s. Have a good night, everybody. Good night, everyone. Okay, outro song time. We mentioned Jay Maskus and his band Dinosaur Jr. before when we talked about Sonic Youth. 
So here's a favorite Dino Jr. song of mine, Cracked, from the classic 1987 album, You're Living All Over Me, which most people regard as the band's best album. Think Neil Young and Crazy Horse in grunge mode on steroids, and you'll have an idea of what Dino Jr. sounds like. Jay Maskus, the main singer, songwriter, and guitarist in the band, is one of my favorite guitarists. And this song provides an exciting example of why that's the case. Book plug time. This song appeared in my greatest underrated guitar sold ebook, which you can find at a very cheap price on Amazon. Like the replacements, Dino Jr. were an influential band who helped pave the way for the alternative rock explosion of the 90s. If I had a vote, both bands would be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But I'm not holding my breath on that happening. He has cracked. <laughs> Oh, 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 oh,